Father's Day is around the corner, and if your dad or grandfather served this great country of ours, how cool would it be to give him something meaningful this year? Something that recognized what he gave to this country. Something like the American flag. If you know your father or grandfather would be moved by a gift like this, then let me recommend you to my friends at Allegiance Flag Supply. Everything this country means to your dad is reflected in the quality of the craftsmanship Allegiance Flag Supply puts into all their flags. And these are flags that are made in America, which is actually really uncommon, believe it or not. They are hand-sewn by seamstresses in Charleston, South Carolina, who had lost jobs previously to companies outsourcing overseas. And they're made with materials that do not allow for cutting corners in the manufacturing process. All of this translates into a flag that waves proudly outside your father's home, his dock, or on his boat, and won't get tangled, torn, or shredded, which happens to so many other flags in the marketplace because they're cheaply made, they're made in China, and honestly, the people making them don't care. Allegiance Flag Supply cares about this country, about patriotism, and about getting you the best, highest quality made-in-America flags you'll ever see. This is a way to say thank you to Dad on multiple levels this Father's Day. Go to showallegiance.com and enter promo code BUCK to get 10% off your order. That also lets them know you heard about them here on the show. Go to showallegiance.com, that's the website, and enter promo code BUCK for 10% off your order and get yours in time for Father's Day on June 20th. That's showallegiance.com, enter promo code BUCK for 10% off. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in here for Buck Sexton. And just a housekeeping note up front, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton, the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show, will start at noon Eastern time on Monday, June 21st. And Jesse Kelly will be replacing Buck in the 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern time hour starting the following Monday, June 28th. But as for today, this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, and it's always an honor and a privilege to feel his big shoes. Just celebrated a birthday yesterday, and this is about the best gift one could have. The chance to talk with you for the next week about the most vital issues facing this country with hopefully some compelling analysis and insights to boot as well. And we will have a great array of guests this week. Thinkers, politicians, thought leaders, real thought leaders, not the air quotes thought leaders that you see on CNN or MSNBC, of course. And where we have to start today and this week is what's going on on the world stage. And in today's episode, we'll talk a little bit about a crisis that I would describe as follows. The American dream versus the globalist nightmare. Of course, the progressive globalist nightmare. And let me tell you up front that last week I had a pre-birthday present, which was the chance to sit down with former President Trump at Trump Tower. And I've only disclosed a little bit about that interview in a piece over at The Federalist, talking about the president saying that with lab leak at Wuhan, it's not a question of if, it's a question of whether it was intentional or not. And, And the president vowing that China, former President Trump vowing that China must pay for the damage it's inflicted on the world. But today, I will give you some never before uh, divulged insights on that interview I had with the president. And I think it was a very timely interview, especially in context of what's going on across the pond 
at this G7. So let's get into a little bit what's going on at the G7. Again, we'll talk about the interview with President Trump. We'll talk with Julie Kelly a bit later in the show about the political prosecutions, persecutions going on against wrong thinkers with respect to the all-pervasive, all-encompassing leveraging of January 6th to convert it into the terrorist attack of the century. We'll also talk about the war on merit and wokeism pervading every single aspect of our society and all the other insanity that's transpired over the last few days. But we'll start at the G7, and let's open up with a couple of clips to set the scene here, and let's start with clip one. We need to make sure that as we recover, we level up across our societies and we we build back better. And I actually think that we have a huge opportunity to do that because as G7, we are united in our, our vision for a cleaner, greener world, a solution to the problems of climate change. And in those ideas, in those technologies, in which we're all addressing together, I think there, are the, there is the potential to generate many, many millions of high-wage, high-skill jobs. And I think that is what uh, the people of, the, uh, of our countries now want us to, to focus on. They want us to be sure that we're beating the pandemic together and discussing how we'll never have a repeat of what we've seen, but also that we're building back better together and, and building back greener and building back fairer and building back more equal and uh, how shall I, more, in, in, in a more gender neutral and perhaps a, a more feminine way. How about that? That's your leader of the Western world, Boris Johnson, over from the UK. And we have to set the stage for those remarks, which are the perfect representation of the out-of-touch globalists who control our lives in the Western world today. And the chasm between these globalists and you and I has never been greater than it is today. And that cannot continue in perpetuity. And that is why they needed to topple President Trump. And that is why, as we'll get to a little bit later today, they need to pursue the tens of millions of wrong thinkers who dared agree with any part of his agenda because it was the key stumbling block to them imposing their entire agenda to increase their own wealth and power over all of us. They needed to knock that stumbling block out and they need to continue to try and pummel and beat us into submission because they cannot tolerate dissent because they want total power. And they couch it in greener, fairer, more gender neutral, perhaps a more feminine way, says Boris Johnson. And what he was really describing there was the Great Reset. It's not some globalist conspiracy. It's right there out in the open. It's let's leverage the pandemic to do all the other enviro radicalism Massive increases in taxation, redistributive policies, spread the wealth. Take away your power so they can have that power. Take it away from the sovereign individual and give it to this global international superstructure that they want to impose over each and every one of us. I would call this agenda, by the way, and we'll talk about this throughout this week. You know, there's the equity agenda at home here in America, equity as opposed to equality. And what is that rooted in? Well, it's really a cultural Marxist sort of term. It has nothing to do with actually treating people fairly, 
equally. Applying the same laws to people, actually quite the opposite. They'd rather apply laws differently based upon who you are and all sorts of immutable characteristics that definitionally you have no control over whatsoever. They don't want a colorblind society. They want color in everything. They don't want a sex-blind society. They want a gender identity-rooted society in everything. They need these cudgels of identity politics and shields of identity politics to use against their political adversaries and to protect themselves by creating a veneer of being socially just and moral, even though they don't believe in morality, even though they set moral equivalency up in everything. What we saw, what we're witnessing at the G7 should be a joke, but it is deathly serious. And it actually started, I, you've probably seen some of these images in the videos, but there was sort of a hype video to the G7. And it's just to paint a picture for you, there were intros of all of these different world leaders representing the nations encompassed by the G7. Going up to Boris Johnson, and I believe you had Justin Trudeau slide on his mask before giving the elbow bump. It's a joke. It's embarrassing to witness this. You're talking about the people who live in the greatest bubbles of all, the leaders of these countries, at this, you know, beachside resort-like area for this conclave where they can talk about how great they are and talk about throwing hundreds of billions of dollars at asinine projects, bilking that money from you so they can essentially pay off what they believe to be their current and future voters. Because that's really what these schemes are about in the end, of course, again— their own power, their own wealth, lining the pockets of their friends, usurping power from you, not being responsive to you, not actually representing you, representing their own interest, and then buying off those who might dare question it. But they're going up there. Every one of these leaders, of course, is all about the vaccine. You got to get the vaccine. You got to get the vaccine. And I'm not questioning the vaccine here. But why, if they're all vaccinated and you're talking about the people in the greatest bubble in the world at this very moment... And they're all going up and some of them are putting their masks on and they won't shake hands like human beings. I thought we're supposed to be able to return to normalcy. No, they don't want to return to normalcy. And ultimately, they have now set a precedent where lockdowns may become a thing of our future, not a one off. Power once gained is very infrequently relinquished. You almost never see it come back until and unless things collapse. And there's a lot of pain before you have that sort of collapse. Look at any of these nations that have ended up privatizing all of their different government agencies, the the pseudo-private or public industries, i.e. the state-controlled businesses. They don't often relinquish those businesses unless things get really bad. And we can look at Eastern Europe as, as maybe a bright shining example for what America could look like after the fall if we continue down this path, this kind of G7 path that we're talking about, where it's all about enviro radicalism, more government power, more wealth redistribution, green shuffling money around and boondoggles, Solyndra on steroids to the hundredth degree. That's really what they're talking about. And then we have... What really looks like a clown, a hermetically sealed president of the United States purportedly representing us on the world stage, literally being laughed at. Let's go to cut two. Uh, With the Prime Minister Moses, President Ramaphosa, President Moon, in just a minute. And the President of South Africa. And and the President uh, of South Africa. as I, as I said earlier. Oh, you did? I did not. I did. I, I, I certainly did. Uh, so, <laughs> well, you get elected twice. So. I, I, I'll go over that again. Let me tell you, we're, we're delighted. I'll, 
So that was Boris Johnson uh, defending himself when Joe Biden claimed that Boris Johnson had not effectively identified a South African leader. He already had. Everyone in the room knew it. Joe Biden, uh, of course, one of his prototypical gaffes, so-called. It's not gaffes anymore. This is who he is. This is someone who has to be staged managed at every single step, which is why you have him saying, well, you know, my staff is going to get really upset if I go off script here. And he has his index cards or whatever piece of paper in front of him, you know, which tells him which reporters to call on, what catchphrases to use. Don't go off script. Don't go off script. Don't go off script. Because God forbid he actually says what's on his mind. It's embarrassing, but it's really it's kind of brilliant when you think about it, because it's bread and circuses. It's distractions. It's a front man, putatively non-threatening front man on the most radical administration that we have ever had in the history of this country. If you actually look at the substance of their policies, the open borders, depolicing, let's empower our worst adversaries. And that's when I go back to and we'll talk about later this week, the equity agenda applied to international affairs. What does that mean? It's sort of affirmative action for all the worst adversaries in the world to make up for what America has done in raping and pillaging, according to the the sort of 1619 Howard Zinn view of American history and America as an evil imperialist power. You know, the exact rhetoric that the communists have used for decades and decades. Now that's what comes out of the mouths of our elites who have benefited so richly from this country. And now they're trying to bilk it for all it's got and divide us ultimately to make way for and curry favor with the power that they believe will be the top dog. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if they continue down this path. Communist China. We will talk about all of these topics and many more. Take a quick commercial break and then we'll come right back. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. I will be here all week and I thank you so much for joining me during this week. Back right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And before that quick break, we were talking about the G7 and the globalist charade on full display and the clownish presentation, of course, of the president of the United States, who is there. You know, we saw these images of Dr. Joe Biden. Of course, you have to include the doctor there preparing for the G7 because, of course, we elected her president. I mean, this is really... Edith Wilson, Woodrow Wilson 2.0. And if you don't know that history, Woodrow Wilson was essentially incapacitated for a large part of his term, and his wife was literally running the show. And it's not exactly like that. In in fact, in some ways, it might be even more disturbing than that, because when you really look at the substance of the policies and what comes out of Joe Biden's mouth when there's a teleprompter or the notes in front of him— It's not even his wife that's really the one with any power in all of this. It's essentially the deep state progressive globalist establishment that is running the show. And he is just the figurehead. And Kamala Harris, in my view, was the handpicked backup to it by, I believe, former President Obama. If you look at it, it it is just the deep state running the show, effectively, the woke deep state. Our elites, the commanding heights of society, the president is just a proxy. He's just a figurehead. He's out there to deliver a speech, have a gaffe, and then have the press cover for him while the actual agenda gets rammed through using the maximum amount of executive power possible. And, you know, it's been really interesting in the lead up to this G7 summit 
that you saw polling out there from places like Pew, and of course, naturally, this was trending on publisher Twitter that claims not to be a publisher so that it can be protected uh, from ever losing all of the privileges and immunity that it gets in not protecting and preserving free and open discourse in the public square. I mean, it's almost Orwellian for any of them to use those sorts of terms in big tech at this point. But we saw this polling showing, look at the bounce back across Europe and throughout the world. America is back, as the Biden administration likes to say. Everyone loves us again. And you see these pictures coming from the G7 and the greatest contrast of all. You had President Trump, G7, and he's sitting down with his arms crossed. And then he has all the other world leaders around the table, like Merkel and Japanese leader as well. And you know exactly the image I'm talking about versus this joke of a set of imagery of everyone palling around uh, in the UK. And you, you have to look at these polls and stop for a second and think beyond the fact that if you look, actually, President Trump was trending up in most of these countries prior to 2020. Do you want to be liked by nations that believe the leaders of the nations, if not large majorities of populations in some of these nations? Do you want to be loved or do you want to be respected by them? And it's very clear That, of course, to our progressive globalists, they want to be loved because they view themselves as international citizens and they look at it as Europe's way ahead of us. We're behind. We're the backwards country. They would love something like an EU Brussels superstructure government. I mean, they sort of have it in our federal government as federalism dies to a large extent in our country. But they love the idea of let's have massive wealth redistribution, uh, including through deindustrialization with the green agenda. Let's destroy borders. National sovereignty doesn't matter. Really, the only ideology that matters is the church of diversity or anti-church of diversity, equity, inclusion which actually stands for none of those things when you unpack it. But another great wealth redistribution scheme for them. Think about all the people who who owe their livelihood to that ideology today and all the wealth that gets pushed in to essentially wealth-destroying or non-productive jobs as a consequence of it. But look at the big picture. Do you want to be loved by these nations or would you rather be respected by them? And what we have now is, in a sense, love because they know that America can be taken advantage of once again and that America is going to accede to the same progressive globalist agenda once again. It's going to go back to the America last agenda. Let's secure every country around the world and let's position our troops everywhere while those countries go out and then do deals with the adversaries we're supposed to be protecting them from. Like, for example, Nord Stream 2 between Russia and Germany. Remember that? The Trump administration, you know, the Russian asset in the White House, the treasonous Trump administration. Well, as President Trump told me in an interview I had with him, which we'll talk about after a short break coming up, he told me, and it's obvious, of course, on the substance of the policies, that no president has been tougher on Vladimir Putin than him. And that's a fact. What does the Biden administration do? It gives waivers on the Nord Stream 2 energy project. What's Nord Stream 2? It's a massive energy pipeline into Germany by way of Russia. Russia uses these energy pipelines as leverage, as power over every other place that it interacts with. You know, it'd be, it'd be they basically say to governments that won't go along with your agenda, gee, it would be awful if we turned off the heat for the winter, wouldn't it? You better go along with our agenda. And that is the sort of leverage that Russia uses. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline was killed dead in its tracks by the Trump administration, sanctioned to the hilt. Biden administration gives it a waiver. Isn't that treasonous Russian collusion? 
Isn't that giving Vladimir Putin the world? Of course, we're talking weeks before this upcoming meeting with Vladimir Putin, which is going to be another embarrassment for America. We're neither feared nor respected with Joe Biden as president. And that's what the increase in U.S. favorability means, because we had an America first agenda before and other powers didn't like it, but they did respect it and they did accede to it. And we'll talk about that right after the break. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, and I'll talk about my interview with President Trump just after this. True online privacy is in the past. Your online data always seems to be under the magnifying glass by big tech. There's anxiety from not having control of your online data while it is being manipulated and sold to advertisers. But now there's a new way with the ultimate privacy and cybersecurity communications tool in your hands. Introducing Secure, an instant messaging and email platform hosted in Switzerland, protecting your data with the strictest privacy laws in the world. Secure is spelled S-E-K-U-R and uses proprietary encryption technologies and independent platform and Swiss privacy laws to ensure complete privacy and security of your data on desktop and in transit. This is secure and private instant messaging and email. It assures your conversations, messages, and data are kept completely safe and private. Secure does not mine your data and is not subject to the Cloud Act. Take back your freedom, privacy, and online security with Secure by going to sekur.com. That's S-E-K-U-R, secure.com. Make sure you use the coupon code BUCK. That'll tell them you heard about them here on the show and also get you one week free and 25% off. It's a great deal. Please use that coupon code BUCK. Just go right now, sekur.com. That's the website, secure.com, and regain your privacy. Use coupon code. So last week... In advance of my 33rd birthday yesterday, I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with former President Donald Trump at Trump Tower in what sort of looked like the aftermath of New York City. Driving in, you had homeless people on the streets. Streets were largely empty. This is sort of a return to the bad old days, 1980s. Probably Donald Trump's heyday as a dealmaker and and businessman in the city. And I went into Trump Tower, and it was eerie, I have to say. You go down in the lobby where you saw all those pictures during the transition of officials lining up, getting ready to go up for meetings with him in advance of his presidency. And it was empty and quiet. You know, there was music playing in the background. It sort of seemed like the aftermath. But based upon my meeting in that corner office in the Trump organization with the former president of the United States, if I have one takeaway for you, it's that this seemed like a man who would do everything within his power to be on that ballot against Joe Biden in 2024. I saw a person who was burning with fire over a 2020 election that he felt was ripped from him, burning with fire at the idiocy coming out of the White House, the open borders, the wokeism, the anti-policeism, destroying the energy industry, crippling what the president had built up in the way of deals with partners and also the ways he took on adversaries overseas from China to Iran and Russia and beyond. And we conducted this interview in association with a book project that I'm working on, on U.S.-China policy in general, and what I believe to be the bold transformation of that policy 
by the Trump administration. I, and I told the president that I considered that his greatest national security and foreign policy contribution. That is orienting U.S.-China policy back towards American national interests for the first time in nearly 50 years. And in, in particular, because China is the greatest adversary that we face, period, full stop, externally. We're shooting ourselves in the foot, obviously, at home. But externally, they are the greatest threat to America at the end of the day. And the president took them on like no president before him. And I don't believe that that's going to be acknowledged to the extent that it is. And I think you've already seen many people who have not given the president credit for that shift in our posture as a nation and said, well, this was naturally where we were, we were going to end up in the first place. But that's really inaccurate. And one of the reasons why is because as the president himself told me, so many people in Washington are just straight up bought off by communist China. And the president actually said that includes the Biden administration itself. This is a direct quote from the president. It's the first time I'm reporting this. I've only written a little bit so far about what we discussed in that interview. So this will be the first time it's being discussed publicly. The president said, and I quote here, they almost can't be tough on China because China knows too much about them. The president was adamant that essentially the Biden administration cannot be tough on China. Impossible. And why? Because of Hunter Biden's dealings, because of the Biden family's dealings, and because of whatever nexus there was between those dealings and what Joe Biden was doing, of course, as vice president and then subsequent to his vice presidency. So as I noted in the one write-up out so far from our interview, and it's at The Federalist, you can read all about it, uh, the president is adamant that the Wuhan lab leak theory is not a theory, it's reality. He said, I'm paraphrasing here, it's not a question of if, it's a question of whether it was intentional or not. And of course, the president was on record with this months ago, last spring, and only now for some reason, and we still haven't gotten a clear answer as to why, only now lab leak is considered acceptable, viable, feasible by our betters. Is it really just because a handful of prominent scientists and science reporters came out and said, look at the facts? They line up pretty well towards the fact that this is at least as viable, as feasible as an explanation as someone eating a bat from a wet market? It's very interesting. Why is that coming out now? We still don't have a clear answer as to why it is that suddenly all the smart people are on board with that theory, whereas before, oh, you're Tom Cotton, President Trump, Mike Pompeo, these crazies, where are they coming up with this? And why did the Biden administration, by the way, why did we get news that the Biden administration had quashed a Trump State Department initiated probe into the origins of the coronavirus? And then only within hours later after that reporting, the Biden administration announces a 90 day intelligence community review. And why do we think the intelligence community is going to give it to us straight with respect to the origins of the virus? And why do we expect that they're going to find anything months after the smoking guns would literally or figuratively be buried? And why is the Biden administration, by the way, still deferring to the WHO with respect to the origins of the coronavirus? Let's go to cut 18, actually. Let me ask about the Chinese have said they're not going to help the U.S. investigate the, the potential of a lab leak in the start of COVID-19. Does the U.S. have mm. any sway in getting cooperation from the Chinese? 
I think the uh, not only the United States, but the, the world is insisting on it. Uh, one of the things that's coming out of the G7 uh, is an insistence that the WHO uh, be able to move forward with China uh, cooperating on this so-called phase two report to build on the initial report, uh, which had real problems with it, not the least of which was China's failure to, to cooperate. And here's the thing, John, coming out of this, we, we need a couple of things. We need to understand what happened. We need to get to the bottom of it. And we're working on that through the WHO. We're also working on that ourselves. The president ordered a 90-day sprint led by our intelligence community to try to get to the bottom of it. And the main purpose is to make sure that knowing what happened, why it happened, how it happened, we can put in place what's necessary to prevent it from happening again, or at least to mitigate uh, the next outbreak. China has to cooperate with that. Transparency, access for uh, international experts, information sharing, that has to happen. <laughs> really unbelievable. Remember, the Biden administration almost day one, maybe day one, went back into the China, Chinese Communist Party dominated WHO that helped run interference for the Chinese Communist Party as the coronavirus pandemic spread from the earliest days of the spread of the pandemic. And also, of course, did not include Taiwan in the response because, of course, God forbid, that would that would enrage their Chinese Communist Party masters. The Biden administration goes back with the WHO, immediately restores hundreds of millions of funding to it, rewards them essentially for their curring a favor with and being controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Just pulling out of the WHO alone, which the Trump administration did, is something that you never get from any establishment administration, maybe not most conservative administrations even. And, and that's just one of a million examples that go back to this point about would you rather be loved by these leaders who disagree with everything about the traditional American agenda, the American way of life, or do you want someone who's going to put our country first in the White House? I'll leave you with this clip of our interview with the president, and I'll quote here, all these deals will be done because done, finito, because China has tremendous power over the Biden administration because of Biden himself. There was tremendous money paid to the Biden family, not only of China. There were numerous other countries, too. And it's not allowed to be spoken about. They have tremendous sway over the Biden family. As you watch this globalist agenda go forward, which, of course, as we deindustrialize and go green across the world and destroy our economies with a radical, enviro-radical green agenda, while China, the world's leading polluter in the world, laughs and continues to build up its industry, remember that really what we're witnessing with the G7 is a pep rally for China. That is who benefits at the end of the day from this. That is who benefits at the end of the day from the Biden administration doing. If you ask the question, what would you do differently if you wanted to destroy our economy, demoralize our people, divide our country, empower our worst adversaries? Tick every one of those off the list. That's the Biden administration in a nutshell. And the biggest beneficiaries, of course, are our worst adversaries led by communist China, which is why the premise of this book that I'm working on reorienting that policy, which has boxed mercifully Joe Biden on several issues related to China to date, let's keep our fingers crossed, was the most vital achievement on the national security and foreign policy stage of the Trump administration. I'll have more in my interview with President Trump right after this. Well, before that break, we were talking about my interview last week with former President Donald Trump, and we were going a bit down the U.S.-China policy rabbit hole. But as I mentioned, my main takeaway from my time with the former president is that he is burning with a desire to get back into the political fray. I th- that was 
from the very moment that I walked into that office and from the very time that the president opened up with sort of his view of the world from 30,000 feet today, it seemed very clear that he's just burning with a passion to get back at it. And you've seen him start to do some rallies and, of course, endorsing candidates across the country and hosting fundraisers and the like. So, of course, it appears that there's an apparatus in place to do that. But I just wanted to, to pass along some of what the president said to me and and really what he wanted to get on the record in context separate and apart, really, from the U.S.-China aspect of our interview. So one of the things the president said to me, and I'm quoting directly here, is you've heard the expression that the person who counts the votes is far more important than the candidate, right? I never thought much about it. Turned out to be right. He said of 2020, it's a corrupt election and you'll never hear me say anything else. And they're vicious. They go after you for saying it. And the president, during the interview, uh, came out and had printed out a few different charts. Uh, first of all, showing you know, sort of his disdain for Senator Mitch McConnell, saying, here's where Senator McConnell was in 2020 uh, before he got my endorsement, and here's where he was after, and showing what the president would suggest as a Trump bump. And then, of course, the election night charts showing where all of the battleground states were at around 10 p.m. versus what happened at 3 a.m. and later in the morning. And he talked about suppression polls coming out in Wisconsin um, and, 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 bas- and said exactly our elections are rigged. And of course, you're not allowed to say this today. If you were to put out a video of it on YouTube, it would get pulled because, of course, then you'd be providing cover for the insurrectionists who wanted to overturn the republic, as we'll talk about in the next hour with Julie Kelly, who's been covering everything associated with January 6th and its political and legal exploitation. The president's dogged in his view on what transpired in that election. As he said, you'll never hear anything else from him. And I don't think he would be continuing to make that case and continuing to be so adamant about it if he weren't dead set on overturning what happened. And by that, I mean, if he was not dead set on ultimately righting the wrong that he feels transpired in 2020 and the tens of millions of Americans feel transpired in 2020 and reclaiming the White House and taking it back and overcoming that loss. But we didn't only talk about politics during this interview. We, we talked about a number of other things as well. I mentioned the president's arguments on lab leak. Um, one, one of the other things that the president was uh, quite adamant about and that was clear and relevant with respect to this whole G7 is that the president said, essentially, I was tough on other world leaders, including our friends and including those who we weren't getting along so well with. And he was advocating the fact, and and something to this effect has been reported before, but it's worth underscoring, especially this week. The president really did prepare to pull out of NATO, potentially. He put it on the table, and maybe it was a bargaining chip, or maybe it was on substantive grounds as well. But his view of the world, I think, was pretty is pretty well encapsulated in America First from the perspective of the fact that he feels that we've provided security blankets to all these other nations around the world, and they take advantage of us, and they impose trade barriers and tariffs and the like. Uh, they go out and they side with adversaries. I mentioned before the break Nord Stream 2 between Germany and Russia. If you look at what the EU did towards the very end of the Trump presidency, it entered into an investment pact with communist China. So you have our worst adversaries increasing, their, growing their spheres of influence in these nations, or among our purported partners and allies. 
we provide them defense and they go out and hedge basically and make deals with the power that they think is ultimately going to supplant America. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Obviously, if our elites are all in bed with one or multiple of those powers. And of course, as I noted, the president said essentially that the China lobby is incredibly strong and and that effectively everyone's bought off de facto or in reality in Washington, D.C. by China. Um, The president touted, you know, bringing the vaccine to market. Obviously, he actually he argued that that might have been his greatest accomplishment for which, of course, you know, he'll never get credit. Uh, He talked a little bit about the Northern Triangle deal, the Biden administration giving several billion dollars to the nations to our south, where there's been a massive and continued flood of illegal immigration into the country. And and what President Trump said was, look, I threatened to pull the funding from these countries. The Biden administration is giving them billions of dollars and they're coming back and saying, look, you're nuts. You're part of the problem. You you have these open border policies. So it's remarkable to witness just the complete paradigm shift that's transpired of national sovereignty, putting American blood and treasure first, not getting us embroiled in all sorts of situations around the world. And you look at the Middle East blew up almost instantly when you had a Biden administration take Iran's side. You go down the agenda, of course, the open borders agenda, obviously, of what we're doing with the Northern Triangle countries. The president noted, and I think rightly so, is an important point that the Biden administration has not pulled the tariffs off of China immediately, arguably because he was boxed. By the Trump administration, I I don't know if in his heart of hearts, if he's really the one who's going to call the shot on it, that President Biden would keep those tariffs in place. Uh, But they were too politically powerful and frankly, too strategically powerful, it appears. Uh, I also asked the president some questions around decoupling with China, given, you know, does if China wants to be the dominant world power and, and the president agrees with that, should we decouple from China Outright. And, you know, I think the the president's response was basically you could outcompete them if you didn't decouple. But as he said, they play a very tough game. Um, you know, he noted sort of his strong personal relationship with President, with General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. But he also noted that that relationship completely evaporated over the coronavirus. And he firmly blames communist China for everything that has transpired subsequently, although the president does not believe that it was an intentional leak of the coronavirus. But the one thing he did say, and he said this very clearly, was that what is clear is that in the response to it, the Chinese Communist Party shut down China, but opened up China to the world. That is, of course, in Chinese nationals traveling outside of China's borders. That's obviously clearly intentional. The president didn't say that, but worth emphasizing as well. So this was a very wide-ranging conversation, and I'm going to put out more of that conversation over time. But again, I think the biggest takeaway is this. The America First agenda started with President Trump, and President Trump wants to be the one to bring that torch forward and to avenge his loss in 2020. And while it's not official that he's in in 2024, having had that conversation, long conversation with him, I bet on it. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And after this quick break, we'll have more with Julie Kelly on the political persecution and prosecutions of wrong-thinking Trump supporters in this country associated with January 6th and all the other ramifications of that pervasive effort. Again, Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Back after this. 
Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in here for Buck Sexton here at the top of hour two. And during the first hour, we were contrasting the American dream versus the globalist nightmare and how that's been so well personified by the embarrassing and pathetic performance of the hermetically sealed president, Joe Biden, uh, over across the pond. And we contrasted that, of course, with President Trump, who, as I noted, based upon my impressions during our interview last week, is fully engaged on these issues and presents the perfect contrast to the globalist view of America's place in the world and really about what Western civilization is all about at its core in the first place. Now, of course, President Trump was the living embodiment, the stumbling block to the globalist designs, and that's why he needed to be destroyed by those at the commanding heights of our society here in America, as well as, of course, our adversaries abroad, namely the Chinese Communist Party. But he is merely the figurehead for the bulwark that exists against the globalists across the world. And we are really the targets. And President Trump himself said this on numerous occasions. And the sort of tip of the spear of the effort to completely destroy anyone and everyone who dared be associated with President Trump, including the tens of millions of people who voted for him the first and second times around, is now potentially in the crosshairs of our commanding heights of society. There is a purge going on across this country that all of you listeners well know about. But the tip of that spear, the most disturbing aspect of it, is this domestic war on violent extremism that the Biden administration has undertaken, where they never describe what constitutes or who constitutes a violent extremist. They never quantify or qualify why this threat that they claim exists is so great. And I grant, of course, now Joe Biden has switched to global warming being the greatest threat. White supremacism doesn't work anymore since we know about Hunter Biden's text messages, uh, which, of course, are not allowed in in woke society and woke companies. So we had to do that quick shift to, to global warming or climate change or whatever he'll call it uh, in the next five minutes. He's probably forgotten at this point himself. In any event, Julie Kelly of American Greatness has been doing incredible work exposing the depths of the efforts to leverage January 6th of 2021 as the key focal point, the core focus of the broader effort to smear and toxify the half the country that still has its head on relatively straight and stands as a bulwark against the globalists. And so I wanted to talk to Julie today about the narrative collapse associated with January 6th, as well as her unbelievable reporting on what truly appears to be the political prosecutions of anyone who dared basically set foot near Capitol Hill that day. And Julie Kelly from American Greatness joins us right now. Julie, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, Ben, thanks for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, it's it's my pleasure, and it's very well-deserved, because so few people are covering this the way it ought to be covered, and you are a a one-woman wrecking crew on this subject. And let's start with the thing that you've shattered above all others, which is the idea that January 6th was a murderous insurrection in which the Republic hung in the balance. Explain how that narrative has collapsed. It really has. Um, And to your point, first, we were told this was an armed insurrection. Nancy Pelosi held this dramatic press conference on January 7th, claimed that this was an armed insurrection. Now, Ben, when most people hear armed insurrection, they think firearms. So 
the American people were told to envision thousands of bloodthirsty Trump supporters, insurrectionists carrying firearms into the Capitol, uh, attempting to assassinate Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi or whoever got in their way. Well, of course, that is not the case at all. Here we are more than five months later. Not one person has been charged with bringing a firearm into the Capitol, let alone using it. The only person who used a firearm inside the Capitol that day is the still unidentified Capitol police officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed female veteran. We still don't know who that officer is. He's the only one that had a firearm or used it. So the whole armed insurrection narrative has completely fallen apart, as well as a deadly insurrection. Ashley Babbitt is still the only person who was killed that day, even though I hear this repeatedly in court hearings. It was in the Senate report issued last week. The media, the Democrats, and a lot of Republicans insist on saying five people were killed that day, including Officer Sicknick. The Senate report said seven people died. They're including two alleged suicides by uh, U.S. Capitol Police officers. So the most, I think, egregious narratives that we were told about January 6th now have been completely debunked. And you've done some incredible reporting on the thousands of hours of tape that are being sat on by the authorities associated with what's been compared to Pearl Harbor or 9-11. And you would think the people who make that claim about this event, Joe Biden saying that it's on par essentially with the Civil War, the worst attack since the Civil War, you would think they would want to be completely open and transparent about framing this topic by releasing the clips that demonstrate the supposed devastation, the supposed threat that existed that day. What can you tell us about these 14,000 hours of tape? So this is um, from surveillance cameras that captured, as you said, more than 14,000 hours of footage from January 6th alone. And I mean, people think Capitol building, but as you know, Ben, it's it's the Capitol ground. So it's a huge complex with cameras everywhere. So the U.S. Capitol Police have this footage. They not only are refusing to release it to the public, they also don't even really want to release it to defense attorneys and defendants who need to see this. What they're doing is cherry picking little clips from this footage, putting it together as evidence, accusing someone of entering the Capitol, accusing someone of attacking police officers. But the defense attorneys and the courts can only see what Biden's Justice Department is putting together. But there are certain lawmakers who have access to this. One of them is Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. So he sent a letter to U.S. Capitol Police acting, uh, acting Police Chief, he has seen or his staff has seen a pretty interesting slice of footage from between around 2.30 and 3 o'clock on January 6th, which supports the idea that there were people inside the Capitol that afternoon who opened locked doors from the inside and allowed at least 300 protesters to come in on the Upper West Terrace that day. Um, So he's asking questions, and I think this is just another huge piece of the storyline that's going to fall apart, is that these people burst, you know, pounded down doors, broke windows, all these people entered illegally, uh, when plenty of video, including this footage, would contradict that. So before we get into 
the trials and tribulations, literally, of the people who have been uh, detained and held in pretrial detention for weeks, if not months, many of whom never had any criminal records. And we can go on and on at sort of the extraordinary nature uh, of the prosecutions that are ongoing. Uh, Who in Congress and to what extent is anyone in Congress Fighting back against the narrative that's put forth, demanding and demanding transparency, and how is the national security apparatus responding? Because I know you've been following the testimony closely. Yes. Well, as you can imagine, very few congressmen, lawmakers have spoken out. Uh, Louis Gohmert has said a few things from the House floor. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, they are really the only ones who have tackled this from the House floor or in committee hearings. Uh, Devin Nunes, of course, also has brought this up several times, especially related to what the intelligence community is doing. We can get into that in a moment. But this is um, Senator Johnson really is the only one on the Senate side who is demanding answers from Capitol Police and now from Merrick Garland, uh, sending a letter to Garland last week signed by only four other Republican senators asking for Garland to explain the huge disparity in how the Justice Department has handled uh, the prosecution or cases of the 2020 rioters versus January 6th. And so unfortunately, we once again just see a small handful of senators, especially on the Republican side, who are taking this up. Uh, But Ron Johnson is getting very outspoken. Um, As you know, he read a piece from the Federalist, uh, Michael Waller's account of what happened that day. He read that during a hearing in February. He also sent a letter to the U.S. Capitol Police asking for why they lied about what happened to Brian Sicknick. So at least we have him out there on the front lines. Uh, But, you know, as he turns around, he doesn't see many of his colleagues behind him, unfortunately. So in just about a minute and a half or a minute and a half or so, uh, if you would indulge us, do you have any explanation for why there is such great silence on the Republican side when you have, as you note, the intelligence community, the national security apparatus, obviously the entire Democratic Party, and then some percentage of Republicans as well out there trying to clearly leverage this event to not only smear and toxify and chill half the country, but also justify this coming domestic war on violent extremism that the Biden administration has threatened to prosecute? Um, The short answer is because they are cowards. Um, You know, when you have this going on and you can't even get someone like Mitch McConnell to speak out, let alone Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, even some of the more libertarian side, uh, Rand Paul, for example, I don't think that he has said anything about this. So they're cowards. They're afraid that this apparatus is going to be turned against them. Ron Johnson has said in a few interviews lately, well, of course, they're not going to because look what the media is doing to him. Um, And so I don't really think he cares. He hasn't really announced if he's going to run for reelection next year. Um, But they are not willing to sacrifice, I guess, their political futures to take on what is clearly not just a constitutional crisis right now, but a humanitarian one going on in this D.C. jail. 
Yeah, and that, that's a great tease into what we'll talk about just after a short break in terms of what is actually happening on the ground to the individuals who have been a part of this massive, wide-ranging, all-encompassing, pervasive investigation that is treating what occurred on January 6th as if it's 9-11 or something equivalent to it. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. More with Julie Kelly after this short break. Look, Chris Ray testified publicly on the Hill that what happened on January 6th is domestic terrorism. What have we learned from our experience with international terrorism? In order to address that problem, arresting low-level operatives is merely a speed bump, not a roadblock. In order to really tackle terrorism, and this time domestically, you've got to attack and dismantle the, the, the command and control element of a terrorist group. And unfortunately, and I know this is painful to hear, that may mean people sitting in Congress right now, people in and around the former president. That's how you do this. Otherwise, recruitment, inciting, and and uh, cult-like leadership continues to recruit people to violence. That was a former national security official, Frank Figliuzzi, ca- calling persecuting Americans, not just prosecuting them, persecuting them, as Julie Kelly will explain in just a second, merely a speed bump. Actually, Americans are getting treated as if they are members of al-Qaeda, except far worse because they're not at Gitmo. They're being held in conditions that rival third world sort of jail conditions. And the woman who's been exposing all of that is Julie Kelly. Julie, tell us a little bit about those being held in pretrial detention and what their lives are like associated with January 6th. So Biden's Justice Department repeatedly is going to federal court with motions for pretrial detention, which means that the defendant would be held behind bars, denied bail, awaiting trials, where a judge almost allowed the government to keep a nonviolent offender, a Marine, former Marine with 20 years of service, no criminal record behind bars because they consider him a danger to the community. Um, So what they're doing is transporting dozens of these defendants into a D.C. prison, which is uh, specifically housing January 6th defendants. They're being held in essentially solitary confinement conditions, allowed one hour out one hour a day. I'm hearing reports now it's been boosted up to two hours a day. Um, But they've been denied just basic hygiene services. Uh, They have to share a tablet. They don't have access to their attorneys. They don't have access to a library or law library so they can help build their own defense. Um, They are being awakened at 3 a.m. to eat some kind of gruel for breakfast. Dinner is like some moldy bologna sandwich. Um, At least some of the people have access to commissary. Their family members are sending money, but apparently others don't. Um, So they are political prisoners being held hostage by the Biden regime because they dared to support the former President Trump uh, and also doubt the legitimacy of of Biden's presidency. It's just astonishing, Ben, to hear these words come out of my mouth repeatedly and to hear these court hearings, the arguments that our, our Justice Department is making in court, what these federal judges are doing. Um, They are punishing Americans. But to your point, what that clip shows is this is just a stepping stone. They want to go after the so-called sedition caucus, the lawmakers, senators and uh, congressmen who wanted to, uh, you know, delay certification of the Electoral College and perform that that audit. So this is not going anywhere. Uh, This is a completely partisan uh, witch hunt, manhunt that is destroying the lives of innocent Americans and their families. 
Uh, and this is really a terror campaign by our own government against the right. So, so you mentioned uh, wrong think being thought by several of those people who are being held in pretrial detention. And you're saying that courts or the Justice Department on behalf of the Biden administration is using the idea of doubting the legitimacy of the election to keep these people in these conditions. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I heard it again last week, a judge a judge basically arguing that if the defendant doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the Biden presidency, he or she won't follow the laws of the U.S. government because they doubt the entire government structure, which is just preposterous. And therefore, they are a danger to the community. Uh, I mean, I heard this from a federal judge again last week, basically agreeing with the government. I mean, think that over the last past four or five years, the people who doubted the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency, who said he was elected because of Vladimir Putin, who twice tried to impeach him, among other ways of getting him out of office, not the least of which was the Robert Mueller probe. None of that was legal, you know, between 2016 and in 2021. But now suddenly it's not just illegal for lawmakers to try to proceed with bogus impeachment trials. But average Americans, 70 percent of which, as you know, Ben, Republicans still do not think that Joe Biden received enough legitimate votes to be elected. So this is wrong think at the very least. Um, But it is being used as evidence to prosecute Americans and keep them behind bars awaiting trial. So in in just about 30 seconds, what's your message to Americans about what we're seeing with the pretrial detention? What does this portend for the country? Um, I think it's a very scary territory. I think Americans need to pay attention to this. Uh, You can obviously read my work or the work of a handful of others. Call your lawmakers and demand that they start speaking out about this because it's the only way we could get some attention and hopefully some action uh, to put a stop to this. Joy Kelly from American Greatness, you've done exceptional reporting on this. I urge everyone to check it out. Thanks so much for coming on the program today. Ben, thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show right after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. We were just talking with Julie Kelly about January 6th and the efforts of those at the commanding heights of society to leverage this individual event. First of all, blow it out of all proportions into being the greatest terrorist attack on the country since the Civil War compared to 9-11, compared to Pearl Harbor and beyond, with all the demagoguery that we expect from the likes of a Chuck Schumer or a Nancy Pelosi. But it's, it's even far more pervasive than that because they're trying to leverage this into a whole war on potentially half the country, or at least to scare the half the country that rejects the rule of our ruling class. And, you know, part of what I've argued in several articles is that If the January 6th narrative has collapsed, then shouldn't all of these events being used around January 6th to actually pursue wrong thinkers in this country also collapse along with it? And of course, we're not living in that kind of rational world. We're living in a ruling class dominated world. So, of course, this isn't going to cease. They're going to continue leveraging it to, to serve their narratives. And, you know, there was another narrative that came up over the weekend that I also think bears spending a couple moments on because it so perfectly encapsulates where our ruling class is, not where America is. And I, and I do, I, I will have to say on an optimistic note, you have to believe, and we'll talk a little bit later in the episode and certainly during this week about what's going on in schools across this country. But the more parents 
and just patriotic citizens find out what the left actually believes and how those beliefs are translating into policies that are impacting our day-to-day lives, the more I think you are asking for a massive counter-response, which hopefully means crushing Democrats at the ballots in the midterm elections, although I put very little faith in whoever ultimately the Republicans are uh, that end up maybe taking back a majority in the House. But let's hope that I'm wrong and, and let's hope it ends up far more sanguine than I expect. But nevertheless, I do believe it, it does feel as if at a visceral gut level, there is a counter response that's boiling here where people are going to say enough is enough. The leftist insanity just doesn't do it for us. And of course, look, we saw that to some extent in elections last year where Republicans dominated in the House. And I think that was in no small part a consequence of opposition to the defund the police agenda, the collapse of many cities across this country, the rolling lockdowns, usurping your most basic liberties while social justice warriors could go out and literally crack skulls with impunity across this country. Obviously understanding that destroying your your energy industry The only growing industry in the country, basically, is idiotic. It's suicidal. Very clear that the left's agenda is not the American agenda. And it means that you got to vote Democrats out of office across the board everywhere to stop it. And then you need Republicans who are not just progressive light to take those seats. And that's why it's our job to continue to inform our fellow citizens, to advocate, to be activists ourselves. Because ultimately, it is about influencing culture. And one of the ways that you influence culture is you got to destroy the narratives that are just flat-out lies. And you have to expose why the cynics are using these narratives and forcing them on us. So January 6th is a huge example. There's a more minor example that was brought out by what I would, you know, what I would call a, a kind of strange ally that's become of him in Glenn Greenwald's right before the weekend, or maybe it was over the weekend, actually. And he tweeted this. Democratic senators and activist groups promoting a false, conclusively disproven narrative about the Pulse shootings for their own benefits. Remember, the Pulse shootings by an Islamist are taking out dozens of people, shooting dozens and killing dozens of Americans at a gay nightclub. I believe it was in the Orlando, Florida area. Greenwald says anti-LGBT animus was not a part of that massacre. It dishonors the memories of the victims and the LGBT cause to lie about what happened. And what he was referring to in this tweet were all of these different tweets from Democratic senators talking about the Pulse nightclub shooting. 49, here's Senator Dick Durbin. Today we hashtag remember Pulse. 49 lives lost to senseless gun violence. Of course, it's the weapon, not the person pulling the trigger. And anti-LGBTQ hate, a tragedy that is still hard to comprehend. But tomorrow, with Pulse always in our minds, we continue the fight to end gun violence and hatred. We will not rest until we do. If you don't have the facts to back a narrative, pull the narrative out. That's what they say on, on the left. Similar tweets from the likes of Tammy Duckworth, five years ago, lost 49 people in a deadly hate vote shooting at the Pulse nightclub. LGBTQ plus community was targeted and killed all because they dared to live their lives. This was simply not what happened at the Pulse nightclub. Again, it was an Islamist. And the transcripts that we have, I believe that Islamist declared his allegiance to the Islamic State. He clearly spoke with all the telltale rhetoric of a jihadist and committed a jihadist attack and apparently was scoping out all sorts of other locations having nothing to do with the gay community when he took that attack, when he engaged in that attack on innocent Americans. But the left, they don't care. 
They will take the most egregious example. They will spin it, of course, in this case, to what weapon was used and who the victims were. Just like, of course, you know, we saw in the recent shooting up of a couple of spas where a number of Asians, though not solely Asian women, were killed by a shooter in the Atlanta area. And, of course, they said that this was an anti-Asian attack. And, of course, the anti-Asian rhetoric of Donald Trump for daring to call the virus by its rightful name, its place of origin, the Chinese coronavirus or the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus, that he had incited and inspired these attacks, which, of course, is all about painting half the country as a racist. You see, the narratives, they always come back. It always comes back to going after you and me. That also was a false narrative. This was the person in the Atlanta, Georgia area supposedly, first of all, was a disturbed individual and supposedly a sex addict. And this was uh, his twisted way of of taking out his his uh, angst on society. But again, never let that never let the facts get in the way of a good political narrative for the left. And and so. This tweet caught my eye from Glenn Greenwald when I saw another tweet from Andy No over the weekend. You know, Andy No, of course, has been responsible for exposing Antifa to no end and has consequently faced risks to his lives for it and faced bodily harm as a consequence of it. He tweeted, there was a mass shooting overnight, and this is on June 12th, in an entertainment district of Austin, Texas. 13 were injured. One suspect, described by police as a slim black male with dreadlocks, escaped the scene. Then Andy tweets a screenshot from the Austin American Statesman, a pretty big publication there. Liberal newspaper Austin at Statesman says it refuses to print the description of the mass shooting suspect for ideological reasons. The at-large suspect is described by police as a slim black male with dreadlocks who wore a black shirt. And then if you look at the editor's note from the Austin American Statesman, It says, police have only released a vague description of the suspected shooter as of Saturday morning. The Austin American statesman is not including the description as it is too vague at this time to be useful in identifying the shooter. And such publication could be harmful in perpetuating stereotypes. So think about this for a second. In certain instances, they will attribute a motive to a shooter that does not exist. In other instances, they won't describe the shooter, the characteristics of the shooter, because it might perpetuate a stereotype. Well, talk about the bigotry of low expectations. I mean, this isn't even soft bigotry. What the hell do the facts of the case have to do with perpetuating a stereotype? I mean, this is beyond editorialization. This is just straight up injecting the party line into, I guess, a party publication. And again, this isn't unique. I mean, this is where we are as a society today in the creative classes and the media and entertainment in most of our woke corporations, obviously in our federal government in general and the executive branch in particular. But now we're not going to print who the suspects were, what their characteristics are openly and honestly. Again, it's the complete opposite of a colorblind society. It's actually seeing color in everything, but then hiding color if it's inconvenient to whatever narrative you want to put forth. What the hell is what the hell is the stereotype that the Austin American statesman is talking about here? There's a black suspect. It's not racist or bigoted to say that. But of course, you know, like we saw in the case of that Atlanta, Georgia shooting, it was white supremacism, of course, rooted in Donald, inspired by Donald Trump's rhetoric that led to an anti-Asian attack. None of which of those parts are true, except that the suspect that the shooter was white. That said, pointing out the double standards and the hypocrisy, it's worthwhile. It's necessary to be done. It shows you once again that our commanding heights are destroying their own credibility. They're not operating in good faith, obviously. And to go back to the point 
of that January 6th conversation with Julie Kelly, you know, she called our purported representatives cowards. I would say there's also ignorance in them. They don't understand the stakes. You and I, we understand the stakes. The other side wants it all. They want total power. They're willing to use any and all tactics to achieve it. Look at these stories now out about how the DOJ is probing the Trump DOJ, of course, for pursuing its political adversaries and looking into Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell when it came to leaks from an intelligence committee on the House side where they obviously leaked and lied all the time, we know. But now, oh my gosh, President Trump had weaponized the DOJ. Remember, this is a guy who had every agency in the federal government basically weaponized against him from before he was even president of the United States and then was sabotaged and stabbed in the back by all these agencies while he was president of the United States. It is so remarkable to witness in real time the depths to which the left, the progressives will go. But then, of course, they have, they're provided cover by so-called moderate Democrats and then establishment Republicans, too. And it all comes down to an understanding of the stakes. The other side wants to dominate. They want total power. Again, they are willing to use any and all tactic to achieve it above board or not. And they want it all. And what percentage of Republican representatives understand those stakes? Very few and some of them only on select issues. But that is what it all comes down to at the end of the day. It's who is your political adversary? What is their nature? What are their goals, tactics, and strategies? Same thing with understanding communist China as it is at home. And what I'm going to try to do this entire week is to elucidate it very clearly for you what those stakes are. And those stakes are the entire ballgame. They're the entire American way of life. It is all out there. It is all being fought for right now. And thank God there are tens of millions of Americans, again, just like you, who are patriotic, who love this country, who love its founding values and principles, who love the founders themselves, and who see through this and see the insanity that's going on in our society, and have said enough is enough, and are not going to take it anymore. But that said, the other side will never relent. They are perpetually in political warfare with all of us, and we are finally engaged and so I'll say to that, shields high. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Back after a short break. And one of the themes of today's episode, and probably which will run through the week, is this sort of strange alliance, at least on its face, between those in the ruling class in America and the Chinese Communist Party. And you saw that represented at its highest level in terms of the opposition that they both had to President Donald Trump. And I sort of asked the president about the hatred towards him, and, and he didn't really have a clear and concise explanation or view as to why it is that our ruling class, besides them being aligned with communist China and having business interests and being bought off and compromised by communist China, why they were so allied against him. But I do think it's worth noting, comparing our ruling class and its ideology, and we'll talk about that at length in hour three, versus ours, and how clear-eyed China is, the Chinese Communist Party is, about its goals, namely retaining its power and expanding its power and ultimately being the dominant world power and subjecting us to its rule, I believe ultimately as its vassals in a perfect world, as a, you know, a sort of tributary state. Interesting to note, 
some propaganda, and I like to actually read these English-language Chinese Communist Party publications because it gives you great insight into the propaganda war that they engage in, how they think about the world, what they try to portray to their own people, and then what they try to portray to the outside world in thinking about how we ultimately combat them. And they hate, by the way, the idea of competing worldviews. In fact, there's a document out there. It's called Document Number 9. I urge you to look it up, where they talk about the, some of the greatest threats to the Chinese Communist Party being essentially, paraphrasing, Western liberalism, free speech, open and honest debate. They cannot tolerate any dissenting views, and that's why they have a great firewall to filter out any views that would dare conflict with the Chinese Communist Parties. And oh, by the way, you see the convergence with America here, because look at our social media, where you can't talk about any of a number of subjects now, because the narrative must be controlled lest you take on what I would say is really more of a fascistic sort of system here in that you have governments working hand in hand with corporations to impose their woke ideology, as we'll speak to in just a minute uh, coming up in the next block. But I saw this article in the English language Communist Party mouthpiece, Genoa, and it says this. She, General Secretary of the Communist Party, Party of China Central Committee and chairman of the Central Military Commission has stressed the virtue of patriotism many times. And so he gave these remarks celebrating the Dragon Boat Festival, as they say, a traditional festival observed to commemorate Chu Yuan, a well-known patriotic poet from ancient China. Here are the highlights from her remarks. Bullet one. The love for one's motherland is the deepest and most enduring sentiment in the world. Number two, patriotism is the core of the Chinese national ethos. Well, you know, in America, patriotism on the basis of at least some New York Times reporters seeing flags waving out on Long Island shows you the racism and the bigotry of our country. So you can't have patriotism as a core of our national ethos. Patriotism has always been a source of spiritual strength that firmly unites the Chinese nation. Patriotism is not a mere slogan. A patriot is one who closely intertwines his slash her own ideals with the future of the country and his slash her life with the fate of the nation. It says, in contemporary China, the essence of patriotism is loving the country, the party and socialism all at the same time. Let's stop there and note the party is the country in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to point out that, no, the people are a country and the party seeks to enslave and dominate the people there. And we ought to point that out at every single turn we can. And lastly, they say patriotism is the foundation on which young Chinese people in the new era can become winners in life. Now, this is propaganda, obviously, and it's, of course, conflating the Chinese Communist Party with the Chinese people and whatever China ought to stand for and its history and culture and values and the like. However, can you imagine what American leaders are out there talking about the importance of patriotism? See, China has a direction. The Chinese Communist Party has a direction. They may be liars and cynics and thieves and gangsters, and they are. But they put out a very consistent message which tries to align their nationalistic sentiment and and leverage it to ultimately achieve their ends. And those ends are evil. And they're usually antithetical to what they claim. But do our leaders really talk about patriotism like this? No, patriotism in the flag, they say, is, is associated with sin and evil and slavery and colonialization and genocide with respect to Native Americans and on and on and on. But how are you going to compete with an adversary who says that patriotism and love of country is the highest good by saying that your country is evil and terrible and you need to tear down all of these evil and terrible institutions? That's the question to our woke ruling class. And does our woke ruling class want their children to live as subjects of the Chinese Communist Party? 
We should pose that question to them every single day. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, back just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And earlier on in the show, I was alluding to the sort of woke takeover that we've seen pervading really every aspect of American society. And it bears noting not just the political aspects of this, but also what the substantive consequences are in our daily lives and in our direction as a nation, particularly when, as we talked about before, you have the threat of a communist China, which is deathly serious about ultimately being dominant in every strategically significant area. And then they see, you know, the CIA come out with these videos talking about the imperative to be woke or the military endorsing Ibram X. Kendi and all the rest of the woke agenda or what's going on in our schools across the country and these fights that we're seeing at the most elite of elite private schools where essentially they're endorsing a race essentialism sort of agenda or a what I would call define critical race theory as a racial Marxism, essentially being imbibed by our purportedly greatest minds in this country. And one of the people who's written about this at length recently for Real Clear Investigations, where I should say I recently started as deputy editor, so in the interest of full disclosure here, but I love the piece even before I was named deputy editor there. Richard Bernstein's a former foreign correspondent and culture critic at the New York Times, and he now writes freelance for several places, including namely Real Clear Investigations. And he's written this piece that was out last week, Almost Overnight Standards of Colorblind Merit Tumble across American society. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the program and uh, appreciate the piece. Excellent work. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. My pleasure. So let's start right at the top of your piece. You say a broad revolution is underway in the United States as traditional standards used to measure achievement and provide opportunity are being rejected by schools, corporations, and governments in favor of quotas based on race and gender. Now, in the past, we had affirmative action as an explicit or implicit policy that existed in many of these institutions as well. So the the basic question we have to ask is sort of why is this time different? Uh, very good question, because in, in some ways it's really not different. Uh, what's different is how broadly uh, uh, it's being accepted, not just in the academic world or in admissions to schools and stuff like that, but in the in the corporate world. And, you know, as you said, as a kind of an official program by the major institutions of our of our government, including including the military. Um, affirmative action was supposed to be a way of looking out for members of underrepresented minorities who might otherwise have been overlooked. And that had a little bit of a, of a sense that people who came from disadvantaged backgrounds could be judged by slightly different criteria. Uh, so you already had a little bit of a sense that the standard could be different. Uh, um, and maybe that was justifiable, maybe not. I mean, I always had some qualms about it, but I could, but I could see the argument uh, that people had been disadvantaged for many, many years and that they needed a little special help, uh, even if they didn't totally measure up to people who came from much more privileged backgrounds. But this is this has gone much farther than that now, uh, and it's become kind of hardened into a um, a kind of racial racialized anatomy uh, of American life where 
almost any disparity, any racial disparity, or for that matter, any sexual disparity, is kind of prima facie evidence of <clears throat> of uh, systemic racism or systemic sex sexism, a kind of systemic discrimination against these uh, minority groups. And you have this very radicalized rhetoric uh, <clears throat> following, you know, certain prominent public figures like Ibram Kendi uh, <clears throat> that go even farther than that and say that uh, any disparity is a product, uh, is an effort uh, by white supremacy to maintain itself. Uh, and so, th I mean, this is a, really such a extreme and I think in face of the facts ridiculous uh, analysis of the way America works. And yet, to a large extent, it's being adopted, again, not just by the world of academia, but by corporate America and by government as well. And that's what's really new and different about it. Do you have an opinion if this is more rooted in an actual belief among the people crafting and executing and implementing these policies, that the policies themselves are just versus that there's some other more cynical end to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I can't, give, you know, since I can't crawl into their minds, I, I can't be sure what the answer is. But I suspect that there's more to it than just a kind of an idealistic wish for racial equity. Um, I mean, one thing, you know, there there's a tremendous, you know, equity and inclusion bureaucracy that's grown up over the last few years. I was reading in um, uh, the Manhattan Journal a, a couple of months ago that the University of Michigan, just as an example, has 120 full-time equity and diversity officials uh, there. Just exactly what 120 people are doing, I really don't know. But then you, you, know, you look uh, at uh, almost all the major corporations now have created these offices of equity and inclusion, and their stock in trade is to you know, justify the, their existence by claiming persistent uh, disparities that uh, require special measures to overcome. So it's really, it's really there. There's, there are certain vested interests in uh, promoting this, this view of American life. It's not. I, I, I think that you know your average person uh, is, is you know motivated by a, you know a, a certain idealism or you know I mean a, a sense. A lot of it coming out of the, the George Floyd incident and the worries about police brutality against black people. I think that a lot of people are, you know, entirely well-meaning and they don't have a vested interest. They, they're just kind of persuaded by the power of the racial injustice narrative. Uh, but I do think that, you know, I do think a little bit more cynically that there's a, that there's a big bureaucracy, uh, a well-paid big bureaucracy that has a vested interest in promoting this vision of American life also. Yeah, I want to read a quote here. This is a tweet from Ibram X. Kendi from 2019 that I think 
perfectly sort of encapsulates the, at least directionally where things are going in all of these vital institutions in our society. And he says, I'll say it again and again, and he's written about this separately as well. And I should level set by saying Ibram X. Kendi wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, which went wild last year right up with Robin D'Angelo's book on uh, so-called white fragility. And Ibram X. Kendi is, you know, sort of been adopted by the who's who of the smart set across the country and, and put up on, I believe, CBS and other networks as well as sort of the voice for anti-racism. He said, and I'll quote, I'll say it again and again, standardized tests have become the most effective racist weapon ever devised to objectively degrade black minds and legally exclude their bodies. What is going on across the country today with the effort to abolish standardized tests as measurements of uh, aptitude? And what what are the consequences going to be? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great quote. I hadn't heard that particular quote, but I, but I, I mean, I was familiar with the sentiment behind it. Uh, and there's been, for a number of years now, uh, the SAT in particular, but other standardized tests have been, I mean, it's a good example of how uh, a disparity uh, is, is taken to be proof of systemic racism. Uh, so, you know, minorities, some minorities, uh, you know, African-Americans in particular, uh, don't do as well on the SAT as whites and especially as Asians. And, you know, the argument, I suppose the somewhat more respectable argument is that they're, they're coming from economically more disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, they don't uh, have, uh, you know, they're, they're a lot of blacks now are, you know, something like 70% are coming from single parent families, they don't get the encouragement at home that others get in order to prepare for the test. And so they, even though they're just as smart, they, they, they don't do as well. Um, I mean, there's something to that. Uh, but the SAT has, I mean, the, the, the college board, which uh, creates and administers the SAT, has for years been trying to um, eradicate any kind of racial or cultural bias in it. Uh, a lot of experts feel that it's uh, that it's a good predictive test. It's the only common standard that that we can apply to all uh, candidates for for college. And in the absence of it, there is no there is no common standard. Then you're falling back on subjective judgments. Um, so you know, even though it's not the perfect test. Uh, I think over the last 25 or 50 years, it's proven to be a, a pretty good test. And yet uh, there's this widespread acceptance of the of the candy view that it's, you know, by definition racist. One thing, by the way, that these arguments always leave out is the tremendous success of the Asian American minority and in exceeding all groups in their performance on the SAT. And a lot of these, you know, so then the argument that's the counter argument to that is, well, the Asians are, you know, they're, they're, they, uh, they can afford test prep and they send their kids to cram schools to prepare for the SAT and all that. A lot of these people are the sons and daughters of nail salon workers and dishwashers in Chinatown. The studies show that uh, they do more homework uh, than other people. They, they're told this is what you have to do. You have to prepare for this test and do well on the test. And they are doing that. They're preparing for it and they're doing well on the test. And they don't come from privileged 
uh, economic backgrounds. And now, you know, because they're doing well on the test, they're, you know, they're, they're in a way kind of being penalized for it uh, through, uh, you know, by eliminating the test or, you know, by the, by the end of the whole concept of merit or the, even the notion that merit itself is a, is a racist presumption. Uh, they're punishing these people from modest economic backgrounds who have worked hard and done what was expected. They played by the rules. They told this is what they were told they had to do. They did it. Uh, and now somehow this is uh, this is unfair. We'll have more with Richard Bernstein and pick back up on the issue of Asian Americans and the war on standardized testing after a quick break. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We've been speaking with Richard Bernstein about this society-wide implementation of wokeism and how it's being implemented in our schools, in our major corporations, and even by executive order via the Biden administration as well. And before the break, we were talking about the Asian American population. And this is really an interesting kind of wedge issue that we've seen play out in Asian American communities across the country. In California last year, there was an affirmative action related ballot proposal that went up and you had Asian groups who typically are when you look at Asian voting patterns and obviously you're talking about people from a number of different countries with their own unique cultures and views. But generally speaking, at the aggregate level, Asian Americans vote Democrat. And here on this affirmative action measure in California, it went down and with in large part activist groups, Asian Americans opposing those affirmative action standards. And I think that plays into this conversation that we're having today uh, about sort of the what's going on at, at elite public schools that use standardized testing, like in New York, for example, at a Stuyvesant or a Bronx Science. And you've seen some of the greatest opponents of the idea of getting rid of standardized testing as measures of aptitude being the Asian community. So I wonder if you, if you had any thoughts about that, Richard, and how this is playing out across the country. Yeah, um, well, it's right what you say. I, I actually followed the debate about the standardized tests for the specialized schools in New York uh, very closely, um, and the Asian Americans uh, were against it, sort of for you know for the reason that I was talking about before the break. That you know, they they, they a lot of them are, are are recent immigrants, recent arrivals to the country. They're they're not wealthy. Stuyvesant High School, for example, uh, the the student body, 50% of it qualifies for for free lunch, was an indication that they come from families that uh, are eligible for some sort of uh, public assistance. So they're you know they're not they're not well off, they're not rich, uh, but uh, you know but they but you know the the argument against the standardized tests um, mounted by the mayor and by the school's chancellor was something like, I mean, I think almost a direct quote was, it's not fair that the, you know, the, the, that only the people who can afford expensive test prep uh, can go to uh, the best high schools in New York. This is just not true. Uh, I think, you know, most people are spending about, you know, $18.95 on test prep. They're, they're getting uh, test prep uh, books that have sample tests. And they're doing the sample tests and practicing and practicing and practicing. And then they do well on the test for admission into Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and these other schools. And yes, the Asian Americans have been leading the fight against that. But what's interesting here is that the, that the Asian Americans that you'll hear uh, on, uh, on, you know, on national public radio, uh, 
that you'll see writing op-eds in the New York Times or the other kind of mainstream media uh, are buying into the uh, systemic racism idea. Uh, they, the, the, the Asians that the media pay attention to uh, support the woke ideology, even though they really don't represent, I think, uh, the, the majority view uh, among other Asian Americans. And I think it's worth noting, and this this would be a topic for we could do a whole show on another time, that as well, the Chinese Communist Party itself loves to endorse very similar narratives rooted in idea of America as an evil, irredeemable, deplorable, racist, and bigoted place. So in effect, you have many cohorts across the country essentially serving as useful idiots of the Chinese Communist Party, often unwittingly and unknowingly and and probably unintentionally. uh, But it's remarkable to witness that in real time. And you see that as well with this creation of uh, the Asian American victim. And and you've written about that at length, I, I should say, at Real Clear Investigations and would urge everyone to pick that up. In just a minute or so, uh, one of the things that you talk about in your article is that the American Medical Association has announced a new strategic plan to embed racial justice and advance health equity in medical education and practice. What the heck does that mean for that industry, the, one of the most vital industries that there is in medicine and pharmaceuticals? Uh, what does it mean that they're endorsing and adapting this plan? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I think it's, an, it's a perfect illustration of how this kind of equity and diversity bureaucracy has uh, been created in all the institutions of American life. And so the AMA, uh, I, you know, I suspect, to kind of cover itself politically uh, and avert uh, criticism uh, from, you know, kind of left liberal uh, places, you know, creates this you know, well, we too have our equity and inclusion office, and we've created this program uh, for uh, diversity and equity in, in medicine. How many members of the AMA really believe that, uh, that American medicine is intrinsically and irredeemably and systemically racist? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I suspect that most doctors out there are doing their best to treat whatever patients walk into their offices. Well, on this show, we, of course, are vehement opponents of the cancel culture, and we are going to speak openly and honestly and truthfully as best we understand these issues, and I appreciate you doing so in this piece and elsewhere. Richard, the name of that piece is Almost Overnight Standards of Colorblind Merit Tumble Across American Society, and it was actually a perfect segue into what we'll talk about next, which is a piece that was published by Barry Weiss uh, on behalf of Katie Herzog, What Happened? Happens when doctors can't tell the truth, which is remarkable in the subtitle. Whole areas of research are off limits. Top physicians treat patients based on their race. An ideological purge is underway in American medicine. Unbelievable stuff. And Richard, you provide such rich context for it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks again, Ben. Thanks for having me. And again, this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton back right after this. We were just talking with Richard Bernstein about the various ways in which the woke anti-cultural revolution has really pervaded every aspect of our country over the last year, using the accelerant of the George Floyd death, just like, of course, 
We've seen the January 6th narrative used and exploited as an accelerant to the purge of wrong thinkers in this country across social media and in corporate boardrooms and beyond. You can't dare have the wrong thoughts or question certain areas of inquiry or you will be canceled. Your life will be destroyed. And, and who knows? Maybe it'll end up multi-generational. I mean, I pray to God that children don't bear the sins of their parents. But in keeping with the theme of America converging with communist China, that's probably where it ends up ultimately if this continues unabated. But again, I think patriots like you out there are going to be the, the, the warriors that prevent it from getting that far. And we should be optimistic and we should be hopeful and we should be happy warriors in this battle. But that said, we have to understand the depths of the battle before we understand the ways in which we ought to engage and what we ought to prioritize in this intellectual, in this really ideological warfare that one side has been engaged in for decades. I was talking before I teased this article that Barry Weiss put out on her substack. Barry Weiss, of course, being former New York Times writer uh, who ultimately ended up sort of purged, went out with an amazing letter uh, that she wrote challenging the New York Times on the wokeism and sort of the young leftist uh, Mensheviks taking out the Bolsheviks in the newsroom and that she couldn't tolerate it anymore. And that the Times itself, of course, you know, which is supposed to exist, I mean, in theory, as a member of the media and, you know, the paper of record, so-called, supposed to exist to foster ideas and open inquiry. But of course, we know for decades, the New York Times has been the other side of that argument. They've been about ramming home their ideological agenda and essentially indoctrinating their readers. Barry Weiss on her Substack allowed Katie Herzog to publish a piece that I thought was just incredible and speaks to the literal danger to life and limb posed by wokeism being everywhere in our society. And of course, you see this if we have, God forbid, lowered standards in the military or if Woke are promoted over those who merit their positions in the intelligence apparatus or beyond, leaving aside how demoralizing it could potentially be if you dare to think conservative thoughts that you have these agencies, these these administrative bureaucratic agencies that are going to come after you and halt your rise into a position or stop you from pursuing leads that you want to pursue. I mean, you can imagine all the ways that if you put wokeism into national security and intelligence world that you could destroy American national security. It would be the greatest weapon that any adversary could ever create, and they wouldn't even have their fingerprints on it because they wouldn't have anything to do with it. We'd be hanging ourselves. But another area, and we talked about this a little bit with Richard Bernstein right before this block, concerns medicine. What are the places that can't have political correctness corrupting them because it literally has consequences, again, for your life and limb? National security, medicine, two of the top ones probably put engineering up there too. If a bridge can't stand up, you've got big problems. So there's this article. What happens when doctors can't tell the truth? Whole areas of research are off limits. Top physicians treat patients based on their race and ideological purge is underway in American medicine. And there's an editor's note on this. I always thought that if you live through a revolution, it would be obvious to everyone. As it turns out, that's not true. Revolutions can be bloodless, incremental, and subtle, and they don't require a strong man. They just require a sufficient number of well-positioned, true believers, and cowards like those sitting in the C-suite of nearly every major institution in American life. And I want to read a little bit from this article because it really just describes where we are in all of these institutions and now particularly in the most vital ones. And it shows 
Also, incidentally, let's point out that there is an ideology, there is a political ideology that is pervading every aspect of society, and that you can't have a live and let live mentality, well, let's just duke it out in the war of ideas sort of view, when the other side wants it all, and their ideas are, we want to have total power, and we want you out of the public square. And that is why, I believe, one of the reasons why, there are tens of millions of Americans who might prioritize above anything else fighting for the country, and fighting for our most basic principles as being the trait in the leader that they want to represent them and the leaders that they want to represent them ultimately, because the other side has said nothing is off limits. Everything is part of their political battle because they want total political power. So I'm going to quote a little bit from this article. And this is talking about wokeism. This dogma goes by many per imperfect names, wokeness, social justice, critical race theory, anti-racism. But whatever it's called, the doctors say this ideology is stifling critical thinking and dissent in the name of progress. They say it's turning students against their teachers and patients and racializing even the smallest interpersonal interactions. So it sounds like a great workplace. Most concerning, they insist that it is threatening the doctors who are profiled in this article, the foundations of patient care, of research, and of medicine itself. These aren't secret bigots who long for the good old days that were bad for so many. They are largely politically progressive, and they are the first to say that there are inequities in medicine that must be addressed. Sometimes it's overt racism from colleagues or patients, but more often the problem is deeper, baked into the very systems clinicians used to determine treatment. The article goes on to say, I've heard from doctors who have been reported to their departments for criticizing residents for being late. It was seen by their trainees as an act of racism. I've heard from doctors who have stopped giving trainees honest feedback for fear of retaliation. I've spoken to those who have seen clinicians and residents refuse to treat patients based on their race or their perceived conservative politics. Okay, stop for a second. Forget even about the Hippocratic Oath and the ethical duties of doctors. The meta-narrative that pervades what I'm describing here and quoting from this article is that political correctness or not wanting to offend someone now takes priority over giving someone the best care possible. Think about what that means as a society. We are willing, in effect, to let people die over offending them. So I have to ask you, dear listener, how long can we survive as a country like that? If literally in matters of survival, with our medical community, wokeness trumps all else, including literally the health and well-being of patients. What kind of... Can you even call yourself a civilization if you prioritize social justice and not wanting to hurt people's feelings above everything else? Particularly, can you expect to survive as a civilization when your adversaries are dead set on seeing the world, of course, as as it is, not as they wish it to be, and see their worst adversaries hanging themselves like this? And by the way, it is worth noting that there is a whole push in certain medical institutions to impose this equity, diversity, and inclusion agenda, including in treating patients and who, who are treated and how they are treated. I mean, it's really unbelievable. So this article goes on. Some of these doctors say that there is a quote-unquote purge underway in the world of American medicine. Question the current orthodoxy and you will be pushed out. Worth noting, by the way, this has definitely happened when it comes to treating those with gender dysphoria. If you haven't read Ryan Anderson's books on these, he talks about certain doctors, the most eminent doctors in the world at, at eminent institutions like Johns Hopkins University, 
who are literally purged and they're attacked for taking positions on transgenderism that don't comport with essentially the anything goes perspective and really the anti-science perspective when it comes to sex and transgenderism. So the article continues, they're so worried about the dangers of speaking out about their concerns, they will not let me identify them except by the region of the country where they work. People are afraid to speak honestly, said a doctor who immigrated to the U.S. from the Soviet Union. It's like back to the USSR where you could only speak to the ones you trust. If the authorities found out, you could lose your job, your status, you could go to jail or worse. The fate here is not dissimilar. When doctors do speak out, shared another, the reaction is savage, and you better be tenured and you very you had better have very thick skin. Unquote. Worth noting, by the way, this is these are the same kinds of quotes that you've seen, and I alluded to this in the interview with Richard Bernstein before. There's some, some great pieces at City Journal chronicling what's happening in New York public schools, the fight of, of Asian Americans against eroding the stand, standardized testing as the basis of determining who gets in to these exceptional public schools that are merit-based public schools uh, in New York City area. And you see these quotes from Asian Americans, many of whom are immigrants from China, who say that the ideology being put forth, and if, including in the standardized test fight, but even more broadly in the schools, is exactly what they saw in the Cultural Revolution. So when you talk about winning the Cold War, I've long argued we may have won it in a conventional sense, but ideologically, the other side's march never stopped. Where was the defense? We have to put up that defense, and then we have to go on offense. The article continues, and this is quoting another doctor, we're afraid of what's happening to other people happening to us, a doctor on the West Coast told me. We're seeing people being fired. We're seeing people's reputations being sullied. There are members of groups who say, I will be asked to leave a board. I will endanger the work of the nonprofit that I lead if this comes out. People are at risk of being totally marginalized, marginalized and having to leave their institutions. While the hyper-focus on identity is seen by many proponents of social justice ideology as a necessary corrective to America's past sins, some people working in medicine are deeply concerned by what just Justice and equity actually look like in practice. He goes on to say, the intellectual foundation for this movement, of course, is the Marxist view of the world, but stripped of economics and replaced with race determinism, one psychologist explained. Because you have a huge group of people, mostly people of color, who have been underserved, it was inevitable this model was going to be applied to the world of medicine. And it has been. Yes, the long march through every single institution. And now we get to maybe the most disturbing part about this, if you're not already disturbed enough. And it's in a section of this piece, whole areas of research are off limits. Wokeness feels like an existential threat, a doctor from the Northwest said. In healthcare, innovation depends on open, objective inquiry into complex problems. But that's now undermined by this simplistic and radicalized worldview, where racism is seen as the cause of all disparities, despite robust data showing it's not that simple. Whole areas of research... Whole research areas are off limits, he said, adding that some of what is being published in the nation's top journals is shoddy as hell. Here, he was referring in part to a study published last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The study was covered all over the news with headlines like black newborns more likely to die when looked after by white doctors, according to CNN. The lack of black doctors is killing black babies, fortune, and black babies more likely to serve when cared for by black doctors was the title by The Guardian. Despite these breathless headlines, the study was so methodologically flawed that according to several of the doctors I spoke with, it's impossible to extrapolate any conclusions about how the race of the treating doctor impacts patient outcomes at all. And yet very few people were willing to publicly criticize it. As Vinay Prasad, a clinician and professor at the University of California, San Francisco, put it on Twitter, 
I'm aware of dozens of people who agree with my assessment of this paper and are scared to comment. It's some of the most shoddy, methodologically flawed research we've ever seen published in these journals, the doctor in the Zoom meeting said. Quote, with sensational conclusions that seem totally unjustified from the results of the study, unquote. It's frustrating because we all know how hard it is to get good, sound research published, he added. So do those rules and quality standards no longer apply to this topic or to these authors or for a certain time period, unquote. This is what we're seeing in every aspect of our society. Again, people are going to die as a consequence of this in the medical world. Research is going to be stunted that might save lives in the future, that might help us live happier and healthier as human beings as a consequence of ideology. And this goes to show, once again, writ large progressivism is all about the intentions of those putting it forth. But in actuality, everyone suffers under it except the people promulgating the policies, the people growing their power, and the people expanding their wealth as a consequence of putting forth this ideology. And that's why it needs to be countered at every single level because it's going to impact the life and limb of you, me, our children, our future, our current grandchildren, and beyond. And we cannot live in a nation like this. It's beyond suicidal. It's anti-human from the supposed secular humanists. We'll take a quick break and then we'll wrap up just after this. We've covered a lot of ground during today's Buck Sexton show. And all this week, we're going to be delving deeper into many of these topics from the woke anti-cultural revolution to national security and foreign policy to what's going on in our schools, not just our medical institutions. So the future of America, our loved ones. And in, in this final closing segment, I just want to wrap up with a few items that caught my eye over the weekend. And then we'll dive deep again tomorrow and through the rest of the week on all of these meetings substantive issues. First one was this headline from the Financial Times. Remarkable. Wuhan Labro threatens U.S.-China cooperation in science. So that is the takeaway. Oh my God, U.S.-China relations are going down the tubes as a consequence of what? As a consequence of communist China being responsible for spreading death and destruction and blood and treasure being spilled everywhere across the world to unthinkable levels. But oh my gosh, cooperation with communist China is going to go down the tubes? God forbid. This is really how those at the commanding heights of society think about the world. It is absolutely remarkable. They think the, the Chinese Communist Party crocodile is going to eat them last. But in reality, when our anti-cultural revolution ends and the Chinese cultural revolution begins everywhere around the world, they are going to be the first ones eaten by the communist crocodile. Another article that's, of course, keeping with our woke theme today. Uh, my friend Tammy Bruce tweeted this out. This is out of control. Quote, Federal Reserve tells employees to avoid biased terms, direct quote there, like founding fathers. So when a quasi-government entity like the Federal Reserve is saying that you can't say founding fathers, once again, how are we going to exist as anything but America in name only if the government institutions themselves can't even say founding fathers? And is it because the founding fathers are evil or is it because of the gender? Well, of course, biased terms. So, you know, it goes back to the uh, woke sex and gender theme, meme, really, that exists across our institutions. And then this was a great one by my friend Kyle Scheidler. He tweets, prior to 2001, the government believed that eco-terrorists were the largest terror threat the country faced 20 years later, and they are the government. And he's referring here to a tweet from J.E. Dwyer. 
on an article, Biden BLM Bureau of Land Management nominee involved in eco-terrorism case received immunity for testimony. And this is pretty remarkable. So President Joe Biden's nominee to lead the BLM received legal immunity to testify in a 1993 criminal trial, according to the Daily Caller. Trial resulted in a 17-month prison sentence for tree spiking, a violent tactic used to prevent logging. A government divided against American people, a government that seeks to destroy the American people, the American way of life, means that the American way of life is going to erode. And when the private sector does it in tandem with the government, it is even more of a betrayal of everything that we know and love in this country. But every day on this show this week, we're going to expose it all. We're going to give you the tools, the knowledge, the insights to fight back. And we are ultimately going to overturn this anti-cultural revolution that is trying to take this country down down and turn us into America in name only. This has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. I want to thank Buck so much for the opportunity to fill his big shoes. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back tomorrow with more. Thanks so much.